All right. Well, good morning, church. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2021. And all our problems have gone away. Isn't that magical? This is amazing. Um, we're, uh, we're glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Justin, one of the elders and the lead teacher here. Uh, we are excited in this new year to be starting a new sermon series on the books of First and Second Timothy. These are Paul's letters to, to Timothy. Now, anytime you're reading a message, you're hearing words, you always want to ask the question, uh, what is the context of, of the message that's being spoken? Um, in fact, the word, the word context means, there's kind of a technical definition, the circumstances that form the setting for an event, statement, or idea, and in terms of which can be fully understood and assessed. In other words, if I have a piece of puzzle, a puzzle piece, to be able to fully understand what in the world I'm looking at with that single piece, I need to fully understand that piece. I need to see it placed in the context of the larger puzzle. So to help us fully understand, we need the context. Now, there are three essential elements in uh, context that we want to look at this morning. Number one, the author and audience. We need to know when something is spoken or written, who said it and, and who are they saying it to. The second thing is to know the aim, the one who wrote it. Why are they saying it? What are they trying to communicate? What's the purpose? And then number three, uh, what's it about? What is the content that they're talking about? So I'll give you an example. If I told you, move. If I just looked at you and said, move, you're like, I, do you want me to, like, what do you want me to, I don't know, I, do you want me to, like, go to the side, I, I don't understand, you need, what do you need, you context, right? So who's the author, who's the audience? If I'm your 10-year-old sibling, and you're my little brother or sister, and you're standing in front of the TV, and I say move, I want you to step to the side, my aim is to get you to move laterally, what's it about? Me watching the rest of my Power Rangers episode, right? Like That's what it's about. If I'm a general, and, and you're the soldier, and I don't feel like you're moving fast enough, and I say move, soldier, and you, I don't want you to move to the side, I want you to go faster, right? That's my aim, to quicken your pace, what's this about? It's about getting to our location faster and more orderly. I remember my, my, one of my best friends, Luke, we were at basketball camp uh, one summer. Uh, we were about fourth grade, and the coach was dividing up teams. And he said to Luke, uh, go over to this team. And Luke wasn't paying attention because he's in fifth grade. And, and, and the, the, the coach says, move, claps his hands, startles Luke, trips over his own two feet, and breaks his wrist. He's out of camp for the rest of the week. It was hilarious and tragic, uh, both, both at the same time. If I said move and we're on the dance floor, I want you to get jiggy with it, right? Nah, 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 nah. So it, the context matters. And, and when we, we ask ourselves these questions, when we're reading the Bible, if God says move, it's important that we understand the rest of the puzzle around that one word piece so that we, because maybe we're going to move to the side when he wants us to dance. So we need to understand the context. Some of you are like, God would never tell you to dance. Uh, First and second Timothy, um, there are two letters. And when we talk about these letters in the New Testament, uh, you may hear the more fancy word epistle. This just comes from the Greek word that means letter. So we're talking about letters written from somebody to to somebody else. Um, These two letters Paul wrote Timothy are not just any letters, though. They are inspired by the word, uh, by, by God himself. And so, therefore, these carry much more importance in your life than the love notes that I slip into Jill's lunchbox. Those are nunya, right? Those are just for her and I. Uh, they, though these things are written from Paul to Timothy, they're also meant for us today. And because of that, God wants us to fully understand 
what we need to know and what we need to do in light of the information from these letters. And so this morning, here's what I want us to do. I want us to ask those three key context questions when it comes to the book of 1 Timothy. So let's do that together. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd, I'd urge you to crack it open. Uh, if you have a physical one, you got your phone, um, follow along with us. I'm going to have the words on the screen, but it's important for us to see these things for ourselves. So I would invite you along with me. Well, first, we're going to look at the author and audience here of 1 Timothy. Uh, who wrote the letter and who did he write it to? Well, we're going to see in the first two verses of Timothy, an apostle and his child. Often in the letters, it's very helpful because at the beginning of those letters, the author identifies himself and he identifies the audience that he's writing to. And, and that's what happens here in 1 Timothy. Paul says in verse 1 of Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. He identifies himself as an apostle. Now, the word apostle, it means a sent one, someone who's sent on a mission. This is why we call them a missionary. They're somebody who's been sent. So the, the question is, who sent them and what do they send them for? So when Jill sends me to Safeway for some cloves, I have been sent by Jill for the purpose of purchasing cloves. I am an apostle of the cloves. That's a difficult mission because I have no idea what cloves are. So that's why it's helpful for someone to be working there. Um, wh wh who sent Paul? Well, he says here, I was sent by command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. He has been sent by God and Jesus. You don't get a higher rank of command and authority than God himself. And what did God send him to do? What is his mission? Well, we go back to the story where Paul has the encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And you remember this moment as he's speaking about what Jesus is speaking to Paul and then later tells, I believe it's Ananias, what the purpose is. He says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, here's his purpose, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So what is Paul's mission? To carry the name of Jesus, to proclaim the good news that Jesus has died and resurrected and everything is different now. He is the king. And he's going to do that, he says, with the Gentiles, that's the non-Jewish people, the rest of the world, and kings and Israel. And what we see here specifically in 1 Timothy is he says, For this I was appointed, commanded by God, a preacher and an apostle, a sent one, to do what? A teacher of Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul is specifically a missionary taking the gospel of Jesus as a Jewish person from the Jewish people to the rest of the world. In fact, as we talked about last week, uh, much of Paul's life and ministry is unpacked in the book of Acts. Uh, we saw that he took three missionary journeys, and while he was on these journeys, he wrote three missionary letters. Uh, some people would argue that he wrote Hebrews, and that would be a 14th if that was the case, but we know pretty sure that the other 13 are from him, and he writes these letters to these individuals, like with Timothy, sometimes to a church, like in Ephesians and Philippians, and his, each time he's writing to his audience about how the good news of Jesus should transform uh, their lives. So Paul, the, the one sent by God on this mission to carry the name of Jesus, he writes to, well, he says to Timothy, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, my true child in the faith. Now, this father-son terminology was very common in discipleship relationships at the time. Um, I tried this on um, one of the guys in my discipleship group, Josiah. Uh, I, was, I, I keep calling him my son. 
and he hates it. He, he said it kind of creeps him out, so we've, we've cut that out of our, our, our conversations. Um, sorry, buddy. Uh, but it also underlines the intimacy of their relationship. The discipleship isn't a, 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 the context of a cold classroom. It's the, it's the context of, of an intimate relationship, like you would see with a father and a son. And I think about the relationship I have with my father and the intimacy of somebody raising you since you were a newborn. And the, the, the tears we've cried together, the joys, the hugs, the travels. He came with me on my baseball trip a few years ago. The, the things that we've done together, the intimacy a father and a son. And, and we see this. Timothy was like a son to Paul, probably the closest friend and, and companion that he had. Um, in fact, in, in, in Philippians, he has these words. I mean, the, the affection and the admiration he had for Timothy was unlike anybody else. And he says that here in Philippians. Notice what he says. If the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you for a visit. He wants to send Timothy to the Philippian church. Why? He says, I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. He says, here is one who, who loves people more than himself, and that's a rarity in this world. This is, my, this is my son, and I'm so proud of him. He says, all the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ, but not my Timothy. He says, but you know how Timothy has proved himself. And here's that language again, like a, like a son with his father. He has served with me in preaching the good news. In fact, in 2 Timothy, he gets very personal and intimate with Timothy and in his instructions. And he's going to pass the baton of his ministry off as Paul is, he knows that his time is short. And he wants Timothy to carry on his legacy for him. And, and Paul, of course, we know didn't have any, most likely, we, we have no record of him having children of his own. So a special importance here in their relationship. Now, we saw last week, th these two met uh, on the second of Paul's three missionary journeys uh, in, in Lystra and in Derby, kind of where modern-day Turkey is. And Paul asks him to join in the fun, and they travel together. And even when they're apart, when they're, when they're not traveling companions, they're furiously writing letters back and forth to each other. You think about modern, it's kind of first-century texting. They're going back and forth constantly. Just got stoned, LOL. <laughs> uh, context. Context matters. Context matters. Uh, and and because, because he trusted Timothy, he sent Timothy to do some of the most difficult tasks. And we're going to see next week that this is one of those extremely difficult tasks, what Timothy is doing in Ephesus. So let's look at the aim. Why did Paul write to Timothy? What's his purpose in writing to him? Well, for that, we're actually going to flip ahead to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at the end of chapter 3. And if any of you were following along in our reading plan that uh, we just started this week, some of you might have looked at day one as we're starting the, the letter of 1 Timothy, and you're like, why is the first reading in Timothy 3, 14 to 16? Wouldn't you start at the beginning of the letter, Justin? Why are, you getting things out, why are we getting things out of order here? Well, the reason we're going to see here is very clear as we, as we read. The literal center of the book of Timothy, or close to it, is where we find the purpose. It's central to, import, to, the, to be able to understand this letter. We need to know why Paul's writing it. So we want to start here in these three verses. Notice what he says in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... And now he's about to tell him his purpose. But what does he say here? Uh, in verse 3, we see of chapter 1 that Timothy's in Ephesus at the time. And Paul wants to join him. But he says, I might be delayed. Don't know why. If he anticipates a, a donkey breakdown, exactly what would be keeping him from coming. But he anticipates that could happen. 
So he writes Timothy this letter, and he says, ahead of my personal arrival, if I do indeed get delayed, here's what I want you to be doing in my absence. What's the purpose of the letter? If we're to understand 1 Timothy, we need to understand what he says next. So that, if I'm delayed, I want you to, I'm writing these things to you now, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. He wants Timothy to know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, Timothy is not one of the pastors, the elders in the Ephesian church. He's a sent one to that church. That's the the ministry of the apostle or the missionary. They go to these churches to encourage them. This church is only about 10 years old. So imagine a 10-year-old church. Any 10-year-olds that you know that are just fully grown, they're developed, they're they're, they're driving their own car, they're holding down a steady job, raising kids of their own. No, like 10-year-olds still have a long way to go, right? Need a lot of help. Well, a 10-year-old church, it's the same exact thing. And so Paul is, is sent Timothy there to show them how they ought to behave. Now to do that, if you're going to tell somebody else, instruct someone on how they're supposed to live, you need to have some authority, right? If I'm going to stand here from this stage and, 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 and tell you, instruct you on how you should live your life as a, as a spouse, as a parent, as a coworker, your thought life, that authority from which I'm speaking needs to come from higher up the chain of command than me. This can't be Justin's idea or Justin's purpose for your life. This needs to be from the word of God. And that's why it's so important that Paul at the outset says, this is, I'm, I've been sent to you to instruct you these things from God himself and Christ Jesus, our hope. And so Paul, with the authority of God, tells Timothy to instruct these people in Ephesus how to live. And what context do you say? How to behave where? How to behave in the household of God. So what do we mean by the household of God? Well, he's not talking about a physical family, mother, son, children, or mother, husband, children, mother, father, children. I don't know. Nuclear families are tough. Uh, physical building, right? We're not talking about a physical family nor a physical building. We often use language, like even maybe today, you said, we're going to church. Well, what does that mean? When we talk about the word church, we're talking about a location, we're talking about a building. We, who, what are we talking about? Well, he clarifies this in the next sentence. He says, in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The household of God is the church of the living God. Well, if we're going to use that language church, let's clarify what we're talking about here. Growing up, I went to KBH Elementary uh, here locally, and, and we would have these assemblies where the principal would get on the intercom and attention all teachers and students, please report to the gymnasium. And so we'd come, he would call us out of our various classrooms and we would gather together, we would assemble in the gymnasium, right? So then we'd have a time where maybe it was announcing the winner of the summer reading contest and you would be crowned like book king of the universe and maybe it was that we were going to have a school, uh, one of the elementary classes sing a song or, or play, a, a, you know, play a number from their band. We'd hear the band rocking hot cross buns. You know how good that was? <laughs> Oh, oh, close, 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 close. Uh, What we see here, the church, when we talk about the church, church literally means called out ones, ekklesia, called out. And, and, And also the definition is an assembly. And what we see is that God has called us out from sin and death and darkness. And he has called us into, to gather into his kingdom of light. We're the called out ones, the ones that assemble together. And when we're talking about assembly, we're not just meaning in a building, but it's those who have been gathered together in Christ. 
Those are the ones that he's referring to here as the church. And so Paul tells Timothy to instruct that assembly, that gathering of believers, and to tell them, show them how they ought to live, how they ought to behave. I remember uh, at Cook Inlet, the girls' basketball team had this pregame ritual uh, before the home games. And, and they would bang, before they'd run out to do the warm-ups, they would bang on the wall. And the, the captain would always uh, scream out, Whose house? And then the rest of the girls would go, Our house! Whose house? Our house! It was really intimidating for the other team, right? That, that soprano really got them. So here, here's Paul, and, and probably more of a bass, Whose house? And, they, and he would answer, God's house. Whose house? This is God's house. The household of God. The church of the living God. And brothers and sisters, what is important here, most important, is not the the house itself, but the the one to whom the house belongs. Whose house? This is God's house. The house of the living God and the true God. Which is why he can say this last statement about the church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of truth. That's right, you and I, we a buttress, right? Now, I had a lot of buttress jokes all lined up, and the elders vetoed them all. So uh, we're just going to have to kind of wing it. Uh, Daniel, uh, our youth pastor, he was leading worship up here. He said we should call this message Being a Better Buttress, which is, which is true. But I said, hey, you're the youth pastor. Stay in your lane. I'm preaching the sermon here. Um, he, he preaches one sermon, and it goes to his head. Um, so we, we, we look at this idea of a buttress, and what is a buttress? Well, we know what a pillar is, right? A pillar is there in architecture to help hold up and support the building, and a buttress is, is the same idea. Here's some, some architecture of, of a buttress. And so this idea, just like a buttress and a pillar supports the building, helps keep the building up, we, as the gathering of God's people, are called to hold up, to support what is true, and, and that's going to be done in the way that we live the truth out, primarily. But notice here, Paul does not say the pillar and buttress of truth. He says we are a pillar, of buttre- uh, pillar and buttress of truth. Uh, we're, the building, ultimately, is not standing up because of us. If it depends on us, we've got big problems. Paul says to Timothy, or excuse me, Paul says in Corinthians, he says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, Jesus is the bedrock of truth that we stand on, but we are given the privilege of of being called out of darkness into God's family to, to show the world how to truly live, how to live as God has designed us to, and what an amazing job. What an important job that that you and I have been given before a watching, desperate world to hold up the truth that is so needed. Now, why did Paul write this letter? This is how I would summarize it. I would say, to tell Timothy how to tell the Ephesian church how to live according to God's truth. That's what I'm taking out of verse 16. To tell the Ephesian church how to live according to God's truth truth. Now, he says here, um, how, do we, how do we do this, right? What's he, the last one we're going to look at is what, what is he talking about? Our last point is going to be found in the last verse of chapter 3, showing where Paul finds that truth that we are called to live out. So what, did, what, did, what is Paul writing about in this letter? Well, I believe verse 16 here is the most important verse in this letter. But when you first read it, it can be a little bit of a head-scratcher. Look at what he says. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 
I want to talk to you about the mystery of godliness. And what is that? And he tells us in a poem. It was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So he unpacks this idea, and and most scholars agree that this is part of a poem or a hymn that would have been very well known at the time. Notice he doesn't even mention, he just says he. He doesn't say who he was talking about, right? He just kind of goes into this thing, it's a little confusing, but they would have known this poem or hymn at the time. It's like from all my folks that were raised in the 90s, if I was to sing to you, you came from heaven to earth to show the way. This is the key choreographed move in, uh, in the 90s, right? You know what I'm, everybody that had a mullet at that time knows what I'm talking about, right? So we're talking about Jesus. I said you came from heaven to earth. But they know we're not talking about aliens. That, that was a song. We know the whole the context of the song. We're talking about Jesus coming to earth to live as a man to die for our sins. And so similarly, they would have been tracking with this poem or hymn that he's quoting here. Now, what is this poem? He says it's the mystery of godliness. So what in the world is, is he talking about here? The mystery of godliness. It kind of sounds like a bad Nancy Drew novel, doesn't it? We, we know when we hear the word mystery... Often for us, and even how it's defined uh, in, in Webster's Dictionary, is something difficult or impossible to understand or explain. Something difficult or impossible to understand or explain. So we might think of Scooby-Doo in the, in the Mystery Machine. Uh, we, we know, like for me, uh, a Rubik's Cube is impossible to understand. For some of you parents, your teenager is impossible to understand. Can I get a witness from the congregation? Right? For me, growing up, girls were impo- excuse me, girls are impossible to preach. I got the, the first amen. Great. Awesome. Just preach about the gospel. And now we get, um, so they were impossible to understand, right? Why is she crying? I have no idea, right? I'm a boy. I, I do not, it's a mystery. But what we see here, that's not what the Greek word mystery meant. The word mysterion meant a secret yet to be revealed, a secret yet to be revealed. So not necessarily that it was really hard to understand, but that up until a certain point in time, this had not been revealed. So imagine if I, if I have a birthday, I, I do, we all do, um, and I haven't revealed, I haven't, you don't know when it is. I have never told you what my birthday is. It's a secret. It's a mysterion. Now that doesn't mean that you don't, you're like, what do you mean birthday? What is this cake and presents and getting a year older that you speak of, right? It's not hard for you to understand the concept of birthday, it's, it's information that is yet to be revealed to you. Now, what we see here, when we talk about a mystery that's yet to be revealed, what, what is the mystery that had yet to be revealed? He says it's the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. Now, when we say godliness, what, what, what would they have meant at the time? This is actually a key word to understand First and Second Timothy. We need to understand the idea of godliness because the word shows up 15 times in the New Testament. And 10 of those 15 times are found here in these two short letters. This is a central idea in what Paul's trying to communicate to Timothy. Now, Philip Jensen says that we've kind of hijacked this word. And one of the things we've done is, is we've, we often take the word God out of the concept of godliness. Or maybe to be better said this way, we often add an O to godliness and make it goodliness. And we focus on the moral behavior aspect of, of this and minimize the person of God himself in the process. So when we would say, man, that person is not being very godly, we often mean some kind of immoral behavior. They said a bad word, they did a bad thing. Now certainly, and hear me on this, moral, morally right behavior is a part of godliness. 
But it's not the central aspect. What's the central act, aspect of godliness? God himself, right? It's right there in the word. The word itself in the Greek, it meant reverence or respect toward God. This is, this is our disposition toward God, that we would fear him, right? That's the beginning of wisdom. A right respect, reverence, and worship of God. So when we talk about godliness, we're talking about worshiping God rightly, praising him as he is due, walking with God, living before God, living like God. And so isn't that, that's a lot more exciting than just don't cuss, right? This is an active, joyful, worshipful life with God himself. Now, what's the secret of, of how to be in a right relationship with God? Well, Paul says this was a secret that had been by and large hidden that is now revealed. It's gone public. And he unpacks this in Ephesians. He talks about the mystery. I encourage you to read Ephesians 2 and 3. That was part of the, the reading this last week. And Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, which, by the way, is the same church that Timothy's at in these letters. And he unpacks. So they would have been tracking with this language of mystery. Now listen to the... He unpacks what that means. He says in verse 1 of, of Ephesians 3, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles... So remember, there, there's his apostleship sent to the Gentiles uh, by the command of, of Jesus. And he's going to talk about how the mystery was made known to me by what revelation? God revealed to Paul the mystery that he was going to pass on. Now look at what he says, the mystery of who? The mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ, something that was not fully understood in the Old Testament, which was not made known, he says, to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to the, his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. They knew a deliverer was coming, but they did not have the full revelation that Paul and the disciples had now. And notice what he says. This, is, this mystery is, here's the mystery, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Remember, Gentile just means non-Jew, the rest of the nations, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. How? How are the Gentiles welcomed in? Through the gospel. This is the mystery. He says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden, in, uh, hidden for ages in God, so that through the church, the called out ones, the assembly, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So what Paul is saying is the secret that was revealed was that the Gentiles were to be included in the family of God, which is the Jews, the Jewish people. How? Through the church. Through, through being gathered in Christ. How would that happen? Through the gospel. The mystery is that the gospel unites Jew and Gentile to become the people of God, the church. Now, some of us are like, yeah, no, duh, right? Like from where we're sitting, we got Jew and Gentile. We know that anybody, Jew or Gentile, can be a part of the church, and we know the gospel. We know that. But remember, this was a huge moment of transition in history, that God had been working primarily through the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and, and now they're introducing this concept that he's gathering this people from every tongue and tribe and nation in Christ. This was Paul's life work, to preach the mystery of how people access God through the good news of Jesus, the Gentile and the Jew alike. Now, someone today uh, could probably uh, conjure up a bestseller uh, calling it the six steps to godliness, right? Well, we're, we're about to hear six things about how, uh, how to be godly. And what we would do in that book would be to give a list of do's and don'ts. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with girls that do, 
go to church and share your toys, right? There's their six. But what we see here from God, what we see here from Timothy, from Paul to Timothy, is not a list of do's and don'ts. What we see next, the revelation of the mystery of godliness is six dones. Six things that God has done in Christ to ensure godliness among his people. The great secret of godliness is not found in our approach to God. It's actually found in God's approach to us. Because in our sin, listen, there was nothing we could do to access God, right? There was none who sought him. So in order, we, we could do nothing to be like God, to worship him rightly. So Christ did for us what we could never do. The secret of godliness lies in the gospel that, that Paul lays out here in verse 16. Let's look at this. The mystery of godliness, it's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus himself. He says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He confesses, this is the great confession of the truth of what Jesus has done. He says, first, he was manifested in the flesh. This word manifested is to reveal, right, to show. The first thing done by Jesus was to become a human. What do we just celebrate this Christmas? That he was made flesh and dwelt among us, appearing. Why? He was born. He was born to live the life that you and I could never live. The only one who truly lived godly. And he was born to die for those of us, the rest of us who lived wrongly, not according to truth, but according to, to falsehood. And what did we just sing this last Christmas season? Born that man no more may die. He was born so that he could die, so he could live, so that you and I could die with him, so that we could live. He was manifested in the flesh. Then he says he was vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated. Now, that's a big fancy word. Uh, justify means a similar thing. It's to show to be right. Kind of a courtroom term, right? The, the Holy Spirit showed that Jesus was the right, approved, sufficient, perfect sacrifice from God. And we first see this at the baptism, right? When Jesus comes out of the Jordan and, and the Spirit descends on him, and what does God say? This is my Son in whom I'm pleased, shown to be the right deliverer but then ultimately shown to be that in his resurrection. This is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1. Declared to be the Son of God in power according to who? The Spirit of holiness, vindicated by the Spirit. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Spirit shows us that the, the, the receipt, the proof of purchase, to prove that Jesus died for your sins, has forgiven you, released you from condemnation, and transferred you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. If he did not rise from the dead, we have no proof that that was a sufficient payment. But we see in his resurrection the Spirit saying, this is the one that we had been waiting for. This is proof of what Jesus has done. Jesus conquered sin, not you or me. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered Satan. Jesus conquered shame. It's not what I've done, it's what he's done. And then, exactly where you all thought this would go next, seen by angels. Right? Just the natural progression. Um, no, of course not. You're going, wait, wait a second. This seems a little random here, right? But wh why would they say seen by angels? What's the importance of that? Well, we know that Jesus is raised as the Lord of all, the King of all. And that's not just the realm that we can see. Look at Ephesians 3.10. We, we read this earlier. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That Jesus was shown through his resurrection 
and his work in us as his church, that, that he is the rightful king. And he's showing not just the seen realm, but the unseen realm. Let heaven and nature sing. Jesus is the Lord of all. And we know these angels, just like the prophets and the, 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 those in the Old Testament. In First Peter, he says in chapter 1, they longed to see. They were looking into these things that were coming, the secret that had yet fully to be revealed in the Old Testament times. They looked forward, and now they're seen. He, Jesus is seen by these angels. Then he was proclaimed among the nations. Proclaimed among the nations, and that's the book of Acts, right? This is what Paul's doing, that, that out of the Jewish people, they are now, as disciples, going to the rest of the world to proclaim this good news that he was manifest in the flesh and now is risen, vindicated by the Spirit, proclaimed through the world, the mystery revealed and he was believed on in the world uh, what is it that they're proclaiming what's the message that his disciples trumpet well it's the most famous bible verse that we have right john three sixteen. believed on in the world for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life the good news is that there is nothing we can do to be godly but we are rather called to believe that Jesus has done everything on our behalf. To believe in the Lord Jesus, confess with your mouth, and you will be saved. And then what has it end? Taken up in glory. And this reminds us, having done the work, remember Jesus said, it is finished. And the great movement of Philippians 2, where he lowered himself humbly by becoming a man and then becoming a servant and dying the most shameful death on the cross so that he could be risen to a place and to a name that is above every name. He's seated at the right hand of glory right now, interceding for us at the Father's right hand from where he will come back one day to judge the nations and be seen as king of all. Amen? This is the great confession. This is the good news. The secret of godliness. You want to know how to know your God, how to walk with your God, worship your God, love your God, reflect the image of your God? It's not through your own effort. It's only going to come through the finished work of Jesus. I would say it this way. The mystery of godliness is not what we can do, but what Christ has done and is doing in and through us. This is the gospel. Now, why is Paul reminding Timothy, uh, to, to show and to teach the church these truths in Ephesus, the secret of godliness. He wants to show, in light of this revealed mystery, how the Ephesian church then, and remember this is for our benefit too, so how the Peninsula Grace Church today ought to behave, ought to conduct ourselves. Three quick ideas and then we'll be done. The first one, how we believe matters. How we believe matters. Some people would say, well, I don't care about theology I don't care about doctrine. I don't care about all that stuff. I just, just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to live. Just give me the practical, right? I'm a book of James, man. But here's the deal. What we believe, I would say it like this, what we believe determines how we live. What we believe determines how we live. So that's actually the most practical thing in your life is what you believe. Because what you believe will determine the rest of the way you conduct your life. See, if, if, I, if I don't believe the doctor then I'm not going to seek the doctor's treatment, right? I don't believe his words that I have cancer. I'm not going to follow his path. If I don't believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose to save me from my sins, then I will not receive the treatment and the only solution for how to have a right relationship with God. The truth of the gospel is at stake. And what we believe is the dividing line. That's why we are called to be buttresses of that truth. 
how we believe matters, but how we live matters. Because you might go the other way and go, well, only what I believe matters, right? You just say, believing, and, and you'll be saved. In fact, you just told us, Justin, it's not what Jesus did. Uh, it's not what you do. It's what Jesus did, right? Well, that's true, but it definitely matters how we live. We just have to get the order right. See, we don't change our lives so that God will save us. We don't clean up our act so that he will approve of us. That's to get the cart before the horse. We are saved by Jesus, cleansed by Jesus, so that we can live rightly. When we come to him, we will experience through the gospel life transformation. The ESV study Bible says it this way. The theme of 1 Timothy is that the gospel leads to practical, visible change in the lives of those who believe it. This is what it means to live a gospel-shaped life. How we ought to behave, he, he talked to Timothy, it, it, as those transformed by the gospel. In fact, as we're going to look in 1 Timothy, if you and I have believed that Jesus is Savior and Lord in our life, if we believe he's our master, if we believe that he's our king, if we're walking in these truths, he says it's going to transform every nook and cranny of your thoughts and your actions and the way that you live. We're going to see how it affects how we pray how we marry and view marriage, how we pick our church leaders, how we treat one another, how we treat widows, how we view money. It gets into every aspect of our lives, rightly. How we believe matters, how we live matters, and then finally, how we gather matters. Notice in the context here, how one ought to behave, not as a lone ranger, but in the household of God. This is the context. You and I are called to live this truth out together. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to physically live together in a commune, although I think that'd be fun. I know Blair would be into that. Um, and you introverts right now would be stroking out. <laughs> and, uh, but but we're, we are called to be intimately involved in each other's lives. And that certainly implies more than 90 minutes once a week in a gymnasium on Sunday mornings. Now, a great summary by N.T. Wright kind of unpacks these three ideas. He says, that's why this letter is being written, so that in the apostles' absence, where Paul's not there yet, the church may nevertheless learn what it means to share a common life, how we gather matters. Grounded in the mystery of Christ, what we believe matters, central, through which the watching world can see who its rightful Lord really is, how we live matters. The world is watching, and they'll know we are Christians by our love by living the transformed life of the gospel. And so we're calling, in light of, of this, we're calling this message series of First and Second Timothy, Life in God's Household. How you and I ought to behave as the called out ones through Jesus. And this is a uniquely appropriate time to look at that, isn't it? So we think about what it means to live in God's household when many of us, some of you are streaming today, and we've been less often in the same buildings as one another this last year. So what does it mean truly to live together even when sometimes we're together apart? How do we live like God? Well, 1 Timothy, we're going to say it's following Jesus together. He is the way. He is the truth, the foundation that we buttresses and pillars are supporting. And he is the life. He is the only way to live. Following Jesus together. And then we'll see in 2 Timothy, we do that faithfully to the end. Speaking of the end, would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this beautiful truth that you and I, uh, the, the brothers and sisters in this room today, have been called out of darkness, have been rescued from sin and death, from Satan's grip, and we've been transferred into the, 
the kingdom of light and of freedom and, and light and righteousness, Lord, that we can now, as we've seen the mystery of godliness revealed, that through Jesus you are calling out those in Christ to know you, to worship you rightly. Father, we just pray humbly that you would instruct us, that we would know that it's the authority that Timothy had from you, that Paul had from you. That's why we listen. That's why we live these things out, because we know that you know what's best for us. Some of us, Lord, today, we are not believing the right things. Would you change our minds? Some of us are not living the right way. As we change our minds and what we believe, that you would transform our hearts and our attitudes and our actions and our words and our thoughts. And some of us are not gathering rightly. Some of us are trying to do our own thing. We're not in community with other brothers and sisters to hear hard words, to hear encouraging words, and to show this world the peace and joy and love of Jesus Christ himself. The mystery has been revealed, and you've chosen to do that in your church. What a privilege we have to hold up the church, to hold up the truth in the way that we live in front of the watching world. Father, we do this by your grace, for your glory. In the name of the mystery revealed, Jesus Christ himself, we pray. Amen.